You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Gate. Um, Before I get into my message and we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, I want to reiterate that next Sunday evening, our church does have that opportunity to serve at the soup kitchen, and uh, I want to encourage you to join the team if you haven't volunteered there before, even if you have. Uh, It's such a a great opportunity, Uh, especially because it, it deeply reflects what Jesus is all about, right? And that, and that he pursues the lost and the broken. He meets with them in the places that they're at. He feeds the hungry and he serves them and he eats with them and he gives them dignity and grace. And I love that because, because again, this is precisely how God pursues and loves us, right? I know a lot of us have experienced that. I've experienced that personally. That's why I'm standing up here this morning. That's, that, that's why I'm a pastor, because over 25 years ago, God invaded my life through the grace of Jesus Christ, and I've never been the same since. And because of that, I want to share it with others. That's what being a Christian is all about. And, and that's what I want to get into and talk about this morning as we do continue our sermon series through Luke. But first, let me just set it up with a, a little story from my childhood, which I'll be honest, I've told before, so some of you might recognize it. I I only have so many sermon illustrations up in the old noggin, um, and even Jesus repeated some of them. So, there. Um, But anyways, it's it's just such a good example uh, for the subject matter we're going to be talking about, so I'm just going to use it again. So, forgive me. Uh, And it's this. Uh, When I was around nine years old, I was hanging out with a friend of mine near the beginning of, of fall, uh, and, and we came upon this old house, um, or sorry, upon this house that was being built, a new house, not an old house. And for some reason, my, my friend and I decided that, that it would be fun to see if we could get onto the front deck of this, this unfinished house. The only problem with this idea, or maybe that was why it seemed fun to us, was that the front yard was this big mud pit since the sod hadn't been laid yet, and it had been raining for days. And, and, so, and so what we did, we thought we were being smart, is, is, we, is we grabbed a couple two-by-fours that we found around the construction site, and we, we laid them across the mud pit. And long story short, it, it wasn't long until my friend slipped off one of the boards and, and fell into the muck. And then, of course, I followed him shortly after. There's a lot more to the story than that, but whatever. Uh, you don't need to hear it right now. It's embarrassing. Getting mud, so basically I just I fell straight in, you know, getting mud all over myself, getting, you know, my shoes stuck in the mud, my, my new school clothes uh, were all just completely dirty, destroyed, uh, stained. And, and anyways, we, we, we finally ended up army crawling to, to the sidewalk because we couldn't walk through it. It was so thick. And uh, we both got up and, and just slowly headed back towards our homes, you know, like, like dead men walking to the gallows, covered in thick wet mud, shivering in the cold autumn air, carrying the weight of our shame and embarrassment, and mostly just dreading the reaction and punishment that was certain to come from our parents. Uh, Needless to say, the walk home felt like an eternity, but yet not long enough at the same time. And, And on that note, isn't it true that a lot of us seem to think like that, like or like this, when when it comes to approaching God? 
as well, right? We, we think God will be angry at us the moment that he opens the door and sees us standing there in our sin and in our brokenness, covered in our muck, that he's going to be disappointed in us or lash out at us or strike us down with a, a lightning bolt or something. Like he's just this angry principal that's just waiting in his office to suspend us, right? Or like a bitter dad who's always ashamed and never proud of us. Or like the photo radar guy whose only purpose is to catch us in the act so that he can give us a ticket, right? Or as Jeremy Treat writes, many people believe God's a grumpy old man who has to get his way and that when he doesn't, he will shame, guilt, and scare people to get them in line. Although most wouldn't say it out loud, deep down, even many believers think of God as the God who is out to get me, that he is waiting for us to mess up just so he can meet his divine quota for punishing sin. Perhaps this comes from a particular teaching or from a bad experience with a church or a Christian, but either way, this is how many functionally view God. We may not think theologically, but functionally, this is often how we act. And again, I, I remember as I walked home that day, covered in, in mud, my clothes wrecked along with my life, I, I was imagining all the ways my mom would punish me and, and yell at me. But you know, the, the opposite, the opposite occurred. She was definitely surprised and shocked and maybe disappointed, understandably so. But mostly I remember her motherly compassion and her relief that, that you know, Something worse didn't happen to me, and, and instead of yelling at me, she immediately helped me remove my dirty clothes, brought me in out of the cold, and then, of course, ran a nice hot bath for me so I could get cleaned up. And in a similar but eternal fashion, when, when we turn to Jesus, he does this for us. He removes our, our dirty rags, he cleans us up, and he clothes us in his righteousness, his goodness. And again, I think sometimes this concept can be hard for us to grasp, especially for those of us who that, that, that feel unworthy or, or, or think they're unlovable. But the truth is God rejoices over us, over you. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior bringing victory, and he will create calm with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. That's amazing. That's incredible. The holy God will rejoice over you with singing. Jesus, in, in one of his famous parables, actually tells us that, that, it's, that it's even better than that. Right? In, in fact, he tells us at the moment when we turn to God, even with all our sin and, and our shame and our, and, our, and, our, and our dirt and our regrets, he not only welcomes us into his arms and give us, gives us new clean clothes, but that he also throws a party in our honor. He celebrates. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me now to Luke 15. We're going to be reading 11 to 24, but we're, we're going to be jumping around Luke 15 today, but mostly concentrating on Luke 15, 11 to 24. So, we, so if you want to turn your Bibles there. This is Jesus telling a parable. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father div divided his estate between them. 
Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There, he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. And then his son said, Father, I, I've, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and, and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and, and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and, and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because the son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. He was lost and is found. He, he was dead and is alive. We must celebrate. This is the affection and compassion and, and joy that God has for us when we come to know him. Let's go through that story a little more closely, though. So we have this younger son, a Jewish man, who takes his share of the family inheritance early, and, and then he pieces out. Right? Just basically ditching his father and, and the family business. In that day, this would be one of the greatest insults. Not only an insult to his father, but to the community as well. But he obviously doesn't care who he hurts or insults. Right? It seems like he only cares about himself. And, and he's got what he's wanted. And so with his inheritance, then he then moves to some ritzy neighborhood and starts living the high life. Fine wines, expensive clothes, prostitutes, parties. He's, he's loving the freedom of getting to do whatever he wants, which is pretty much like our own culture today, right? In, in which we have this, this, this idea that having autonomy or being our own boss or doing whatever we want, following our feelings or, 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 or our heart or whatever with, without judgment or barriers is what freedom is, and, and, and that's what will make us happy. And if that's what we think, which at our base sinful nature it is, if we look at the story in the garden, all the way back to Genesis, we see that at dis on display. And so if we think that's what it is, then that can only mean then that, that God or Christianity or any other form of civil or familial authority, really, with all the rules and laws and sanctions, those must only exist then to, to, to control us or strip us of our happiness and our joy and our autonomy. So like the prodigal son, we, we, we take our inheritance and we run off to live our lives the way we want. As author Joshua Ryan Butler writes, this is our story. We want to rule the world without God. 
We want to live our lives in independence rather than communion. We snatched the billions and bolted for the distant land, grabbing what we could to live without him. But beyond the horizon lies destruction. We have squandered dad's generosity on ourselves. But of course, as in the story here, rock bottom seems to come swiftly for the young, younger son. One day it's the high life, and the next the younger son's credit card bounces, and he's left with nothing in the middle of a famine. Because, of course, nothing in this world lasts. Nothing in this world satisfies. And so, because famine strikes and he has nothing, he ends up desperately taking a job for a Gentile pig farmer. And I'm not sure if there's anything worse than for a Jew to be working on a pig farm, especially when he's also feeding the pigs more than he even gets to eat. But yet he's, he's squandered his life. And so that's all that he has going for him. He tried to save his own life, but he lost it. Now he has no money, no food, no friends, no family. He smells like pigs, the complete opposite of kosher. He's pretty much sunk, sunk in the lowest you could go, rock bottom. His sin and selfishness have left him literally miring in the mud of a pig pen. But the truth is that sometimes I, I think that God does let us sink to rock bottom because, it's, because we're, we're a prideful bunch, self-centered, and sometimes it's only there that we can then, then truly and finally see our sin and, and actually recognize the errors of our ways which have brought us to that point. But not so that we can live in that shame. God doesn't want us to live in that shame. He wants us to be able to see it and recognize it only so that we can then repent of it and then be rid of it. The son doesn't know that second part yet, but he will. Because at this point in his shame and regret, he, he simply feels he's unworthy to be called a son. So he decides that, that his only option to get out of this muddy pit is to grovel back to his dad to, to hopefully get a job as a servant. because he, he, That's all he thinks he has going for him. So he heads home, that long walk of shame, embarrassed, guilt-ridden, dirty, ready to repent and apologize just in the hopes of getting just a sliver of forgiveness and compassion. And of course, probably expecting some sort of harsh but totally justified punishment to come his way as well. This is when the beautifully unthinkable thing happens. Verse 20, while he was still a long way off. He wasn't even there yet. He was a long way off. His father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. This means that the father was, was probably actually waiting for him. You know, working in his field, but constantly looking in the direction that his son might come, waiting for him, looking out for his return, hoping and longing for it. And then, as soon as his son came over the horizon, he was moved with such deep compassion and love that he ran out to meet him. And even though his son probably smelled like pig excrement, was covered in mud, and wore ragged clothes, he hugged him and he kissed him. 
It didn't matter what condition the son was in. He met him where he was at, and he loved him unconditionally. What Jesus is telling us here is that God, the Father, is looking for us to, and to turn to him. And, and when we do, it doesn't matter what condition we're in, we'll find that he's already running to us to receive us and love us and forgive us. And the story gets even better because then the Father's compassion and love turns to rejoicing. So the Lord not only pursues us, but he rejoices in our return. As Jesus also displays in these two short parables, which he teaches right before this one, Luke 15, 3 to 10. So we told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and, and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So again, the shepherd leaves everything to pursue and find the lost sheep and then rejoices with all his neighbors over finding it and bringing it home. The woman searches endlessly and without giving up until she's found her lost coin and then, and then rejoices with all her neighbors until she finds it again. This, this is Jesus rejoicing with the heavenly host over your salvation. And in the same way that the father in this parable, he rejoices when his son who was lost is now found and comes home. He's so elated to, to see him again that, that, that he immediately gets his son out of his ragged clothes and into new clothes, into new sandals, even puts a, a ring on his finger. Then he orders his servants to kill the fattened calf. That's not a cheap thing back then. That's a big deal. And then, and then he throws him a huge party. Because his son is home once again. He was dead to them, but is now alive. Just imagine how you'd feel if, if you were the, the son in that moment. If it was me, I'd be in a state of, of shock and awe and relief. You know, all these crazy emotions swirling. Like, wait, wait a minute. I don't deserve a party. I deserve, I deserve punishment for my, for, for my insolence, not a feast. Yet, despite what he should have deserved, the Father welcomed him, not with guilt and judgment, but with forgiveness and with compassion. He melted his son's anxiety and guilt and feelings of worthness, worthlessness away with a single moment of love and joyful affection. Like it says in Zephaniah, he calmed him with his love and rejoiced over him. But I bet that like the prodigal son, some of you here this morning, though, for whatever reason, are also believing 
the lie that you're unlovable or that you're unforgivable or that there's no way God could delight in you. Maybe because of something you've done or some things you've done. or Maybe because of something that was done or said to you. Maybe you feel you're, you're too small or insignificant to be loved or, or too ugly or not accomplished enough in life or too poor or too sinful or too guilty or ashamed or too addicted or, or, or feeling unvalued because you think no one notices you. And, and, and so you think, God doesn't love me. God, God can't love me. He's angry with me. I'm too far gone. But remember, so was the younger son in this story. He was the lowest he could go the dirtiest he could get. Emotionally, socially, physically, religiously, and spiritually, the lowest he could go. But that's Jesus' point, that despite his unworthiness, despite what he'd done, as soon as he sets his face toward home, his father raised him up to the place of highest honor. You see the contrast there? He's the lowest he could go. But as soon as he turned his face toward home, his father raised him up to the place of highest honor. Dr. Jack Deere puts it so simply when he says, many in the church today are convinced God is angry with his people, but they have no idea how crazy he is about them. God is crazy about you. Yes, even with all your imperfections and mistakes. He's not waiting in the shadows to catch you in the act so he can punish you or shame you for your sin. He's waiting to run out to you so that he can forgive you and rejoice over you. That's why Jesus came to us and died for us. It's, he's, he's basically the personification of the Father running to us so that we can have confidence. What it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, tragically, some people get this so wrong. We think we have to get all clean and, and, and clean ourselves up and, and become good and morally upright before we can uh, approach Jesus. But no, he comes to us as we are. While we're still sinners, he died for us. And Jesus, in our place, was right and perfect, perfectly obedient to the law. And he took the weight of our sin and our shame at the cross so that he can clean us up and rejoice over us as soon as we turn to him in faith. And in that moment when we do, again, God the Father speaks to us the same words that he spoke over Jesus. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. As Sam Storm writes in his book, The Singing God, he says, God loves us with all our faults and failures, with all the secret sins no one knows about. In fact, he rejoices over us so much that he breaks out in inexpressible joy and song as he thinks about us. And so how do we respond to, to a holy God who, who runs to us and rejoices over us and sings over us? Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 21, when he says, enter in to the joy of the Lord. <clears throat> And we do that by believing in Jesus Christ. So turn to him if you haven't. Believe in him by faith today. And if you have, continually turn to him. Enter into the joy of your Lord. As it says in Luke 15, 7, I tell you, in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people 
who don't need repentance. We're going to switch gears a little bit here because I think that we can also learn from the actions of the father in this parable in contrast to the older son who we're going to talk about now. I think we can learn from the Father as to how we're meant as, as Christians to act towards the world and specifically to unbelievers. The way, again, the way that the Father runs out to meet his Son without judgment or condemnation, but rather with unquestioning and unwavering grace and mercy, I think is the same way that Jesus is calling us to treat others, to treat those within the world. As his lights in the world, we're meant to calm people by the love of Christ, to seek their salvation, to point them to Jesus. Conversely, Jesus goes on in this parable to describe another son, the older brother, who in his jealousy and self-righteousness refuses to join the celebration for his younger bro who'd come home. Luke 15, <clears throat> Luke 15 25 to 32 this is Jesus' conclusion to the parable. He says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and, and, and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, but you never gave me a young goat even, that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. And, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the older son felt that, that the party should have been for him. Or the, that at least he should have had a party thrown for him. Because he was the good son, Right? He was the morally upright son, the son who never left or squandered his inheritance, but worked, worked hard for his dad every day. He never got anything. And so even though his father also extends an invitation for him to, to come to this party, this celebration, even reminding him that, that all he had already belonged to him. His father didn't need to give him a, a young goat. It already belonged to him. But yet it didn't matter at that point. The older son simply couldn't rejoice over his younger brother's repentant return because he felt it was undeserved. He, he probably felt that if he, had, if he had gone to the party that he'd be condoning his brother's sin and actions. And on that end, he seemed to believe that someone had to be first morally correct like himself before being accepted and rejoiced over. Furthermore, he, he seemed to think that his life and his works should have taken precedent and importance over this sinner. He's basically just whining, what about me? 
And I believe that this story was as much a warning for the nation of Israel back then as, a, as it is for us today. Because I think religion, as we especially see modeled in, in, in the Pharisees throughout Luke, has, has a nasty way of, of, of making people feel morally superior and self-righteous and judgmental or smug or arrogant, self-centered, critical, argumentative, and therefore unable to humbly place others before themselves, unable to joyfully extend grace, especially to those who they've decided are wrong or undeserving. But again, if we find ourselves doing this or treating others like this, it only means that we've forgotten that we once walked in darkness and in the way of the world as well, right? That, that before we were saved, we were once the prodigal too. And that it was only by God's grace that we were saved and then regenerated and set free to then live righteously. And so while the younger brother sinned, yes, and very much so, and while the younger brother had done nothing to receive forgiveness or atone for it, the truth is that, that, that he wouldn't have been able to anyway. He wouldn't have been able to live righteously enough or say sorry enough to deserve atonement. And on the same, in, the, in the same vein, ironically enough, the older brother is just as guilty as a sinner as he is. Bottom line is that nobody will act godly until they know God. And nobody can know God without first knowing the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Which again is why Jesus came into the world. Not to condemn it, but to save it. He pursued sinners and, and extended his hand of grace to even the most undeserving and the most wretched from the poor in spirit to the greedy tax collector, to the corrupt politician, to the, to the guilty prostitute, to the adulterous woman, to the wayward son, to the sexually immoral, to the Roman guard, to the thief, and to the helpless widow. And he, he didn't, if you read these stories, he, didn't, he never tried to first change any of these sinners or demand that they shape up before forgiving them. No, his, his acceptance of them his, his love and His grace is solely what brought these sinners to repentance and that is what freed them and that is what then transformed them to no longer live in sin. And, and what we're learning here, I, I think, is, or I, I more than think, I know, what we're learning here is that we can't look at the world and at other sinners with contempt if we do, we're just as guilty as the older brother. We can't look at the world with contempt. We can't look at the world with judgmental or angry hearts like the older brother did, railing against and, and complaining about how wrong everyone is compared to the, to the Bible and how their morality doesn't measure up in comparison with us as Christians. Because of course they're going to sin. Of course they're going to be sexually immoral and given to drunkenness, and greed, and selfishness, and pride, and idolatry, and feeding the desires of their flesh, and standing for things we disagree with that go against what we believe according to the Word of God. Of course they will. Why wouldn't they? They don't know Jesus yet. 
They haven't experienced grace yet. Which is why Jesus has called us as his spirit-filled ambassadors not to fight against them, but to show him to them. That's how we're meant to bring the kingdom influence into the world by showing them Jesus. Through us, the world needs to see gentleness and kindness. The world needs to see grace. They need to see hope and they need to see peace in as much as it depends on us. They need to see compassion and forgiveness and justice for the sick and the weak. They need to see us praying for them and blessing them and yes, even honoring them. And they need to see our love for one another and our unity in Christ within the church so that they can know that the love of God is real. And they need to be invited to our tables for dinner and welcomed into our homes, not ostracized or vilified like the older brother would have us believe. Because all these prodigals in the world, all the, all the unbelievers or the unchurched, whatever, whatever you want to call them, they are not our enemy. They're our mission field. They are people to be loved, people who need to be rescued, and we need to have compassion for them. And sure, they might stand against us at times because we're preaching the good news of Jesus. Right? They might even try to push us down or, or mock us or persecute us or attempt to control us or try to pick fights with us simply because we live our lives differently than them and they might perceive that as standing against them sometimes. But yet we don't stand against them. Instead, we're called to boldly and humbly bless them and seek their good with the good news of Jesus. Because to know him is to know the truth. And only the truth will set them free to live rightly and godly. As it says in Galatians 5, 13 to 15, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law, is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So like the father in this story, let's be sure as, as believers to, to extend the same grace and love of Christ to all the lost who need to be found. Unlike the older brother who, who chose to bite and devour and judge, who missed out on this, this party, the celebration of redemption because he was too consumed by his jealousy and supposed moral superior, superiority. Instead, let's, let's be sure to, to humbly yet boldly go into the world as the fragrance of Christ. Always remembering the love and grace which we've been freely given by in turn joyfully and compassionately offering the same to a world that's been mired in the mud. Let's lay down our lives. Let's count others as more significant than ourselves so that we can invite as many as we can into the joyous celebration of the Father before Jesus comes again.
Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when, when, when we think about who we used to be, or that we used to walk in darkness, that we used to follow the, the course of the world, that we used to follow the, the prince of the power of the world, Lord, that we used to live in sin, but yet you came to us Lord, you humbled yourself and came in the form of man to live a, a perfect life that we couldn't live. And then you exchanged that at the cross when you took the weight of sin that we couldn't bear. Lord, it is by grace that we have been saved and set free. And so, Lord, Lord I just I thank you so much for what you did for us. And it's, 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 it's crazy to think that you are rejoicing over us. And so, Lord, we rejoice in you. We, we glorify your name. We lift up your name. But, Lord, I pray that even as we acknowledge and as we remember the grace that we've been given, Lord, that we would have the capacity and the power through your Holy Spirit, to go out into the world and offer grace to those who desperately need it as well. That we would be your fragrance in this world. That we would be lights of hope and, and peace in the darkness. Jesus, that we wouldn't look down on those who aren't as morally upright as us, Lord, but we would look at them with compassion, seeking to rescue and lift them up for your glory. And Lord, we give you all the glory.